HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. My name is Sarah Kim, and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Go to Cheeselandia.com to learn more, and if it's for you, sign up. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, me, Zara Tangora, and my mom, Bobby Conforto. Uh, for any of you who are maybe just joining us today for the first time, um, or just want a reminder <laughs> of who we are, um, I am a chef, and Bobby who is not joining us for the intro today, but of course for the episode she'll be here, is a psychotherapist specializing in trauma and grief and loss. Um, and so together we kind of, ex- and not to mention she's also a terrific home cook and a former uh, professional chef and, and food business owner. So together we uh, sometimes chat with guests and sometimes on days like today just chat with each other um, about the different ways in which food and grief intersect. So today, uh, Bobby and I decided we wanted to talk about some of our really personal food memories that are tied to food and grief. And, uh, I chatted about some of the things that my dad used to make. Um, it is when we recorded this, it was around the three year anniversary of my dad's passing. And, um, Bobby chats about some of the things her parents used to make, and it was like a lovely talk. Um, you know, some days we talk more about grief, some days we talk more about food, so this was definitely a very food-centric episode. Uh, and it was lovely and just fun to catch up with Bobby. Um, you know, talking about food and grief and food memories, Bobby and I, you know, we live close. I live in Brooklyn, and she lives in Long Island, so we live about an hour apart. And... Um, we used to spend a lot of time, luckily, in the kitchen together. I would get to go out there or she would come in here and we'd get to share meals together and cook. And it was a big part of our relationship. So one thing we didn't really touch on so much in the episode 
this week, but we have talked about, um, you know, recently, but, you know, just to kind of put it out there, I don't know who else feels this way, but I miss cooking with my mom. Amongst other things I miss doing with family and friends, but uh, that is something I've been grieving a lot lately is the loss of connection over spending time in person and in the kitchen with my mom. It's uh, sad and it's lost time. And I know there's a lot sadder things and a lot of people who are experiencing, you know, loss of their loved ones permanently. But, um, you know, in my world, that's definitely something I'm missing out on. Um, It hurts to watch time go by. And uh, I think a lot of us can probably relate to that. So anyway, this was a fun episode and uh, it was great to think about those, I don't know, those really deep memories and connections and explore why we have them and, and just really think on them in a positive way. Um, always, I always like an opportunity, at least these days I do, cause I've gotten to that place, um, to think about my dad and he loved food and he was an amazing cook and amazing chef. So it was great to talk about him, think about him that way. And also hear Bobby talk about her parents and, uh, I hope that you guys enjoy. And as this is airing, we're nearing Valentine's day, which I know can be a funny day for some folks and some people think it's stupid. Some people love it. Some people have a lot of expectations. Um, it can make folks feel sad if you're maybe going through a breakup or recently I've had your heart broken or whatever. I don't know. I, I always liked it, but not because of like a romantic expectation. I just think it's cute. Uh, I also see the ways in which it can be hurtful or disappointing or wasteful, but I don't know. I think it's cute. And I think especially this year, uh, after a year of so much pain for so many people, I'm trying to look for, for the cute stuff, for the little mini wins. So anyway, um, I hope that if Valentine's Day is something that can bring you joy, it brings you joy. And if it's something that makes you sad, then... You can tuck your head under the pillow and hide until it's the 15th. Um, But either way, it is a day to think about love, I guess, uh, in some way. And definitely have a lot of love for all of you for supporting the show this year. And um, yeah, take care of yourselves and each other and enjoy this chat with Bobby and I. Okay. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bobby. How's it going? <laughs> it's nice to see you on this video. Nice, nice to on? see you too. Um, just uh, hearing the dripping outside of uh, it's raining right now and the snow that we had this week is melting and uh, thinking about food and what I need to order. And this is the end of my work week. So I begin to think about my personal life and I usually order meat from my butcher and um, I get food delivered from Whole Foods, and I just figure everything out. Nice. Um, so we don't have a guest today, folks, because Bobby and I wanted to talk about like food and nostalgia and some of our own kind of favorite nostalgic foods that uh, make us think of folks that we love and have lost. And I have a little bit to talk about, um, just about the science behind 
food and nostalgia and memories and stuff like that. But, you know, it's interesting. You were just mentioning that it was a big snowstorm this week. And there's something about like a snowstorm and a day in that has its own. I mean, right. Each season, each kind of a rainy day, a summer day, a beach day, like whatever, a shitty day. Um, all has their own kind of maybe food nostalgia thing, but there's very strong food memories associated with snow days. What are what are some of your snow day food memories? Like, what about being a kid? I mean, that was when there was actually like lots of snow when you were a kid. Yeah, I mean, I remember hot chocolate with marshmallows, which I wouldn't drink now oh, because I'm dairy free. <laughs> but I do remember that. And I would say that now, soup, soup, soup. I just love to make soup, as many of us do, many of our listeners do. And there's something about a snow day because you can't get any new ingredients, so you have to deal with what you have. So it's this resourceful stone soup that you make, you know. Mm, I always wonder. It's funny you say stone soup. I remember hearing the stone soup. What what was it like? A poem or a short, a like story. a story mm-hmm. or something. And I remember as a kid always wanting to know, maybe this is when I knew I was going to be a chef, but I'm like, I really wonder what this tastes like. I'm like, is it minerally? Do the stones provide any flavor? I've always wanted to make stone soup in a way. Well, for our listeners that don't know what it is, I just briefly add that stone soup is when somebody has no food. So everybody in the community brings one thing that they have left. So somebody has a little half an onion and somebody has a carrot that's a little funky and somebody has some more, you know, and everybody brings it together and they make stone soup. Is that the yes, story? Yes, though? it is. I'm not. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like it could be right, but it sounds like it could also be a, a Bobbyism <laughs> of this fairy tale. Um, it was funny when you were saying hot chocolate with marshmallows, because I haven't thought about a hot chocolate in a long time, just because, you know, I don't know. I just haven't. It just hasn't occurred to me to crave it. But I remember being a kid on like a snowy day and like doing like a Swiss Miss hot chocolate, like, you know, the powdered one, but doing two packets (laughs) with the little mini marshmallows and it's like loaded with, and at first they're like kind of crunchy, which is like fun in its own way. You have like a crunchy marshmallow in there and then they got really powdery and then it turns into just like a cappuccino. Yep. (laughs) But the the phases of... The powdered, like, instant hot chocolate. Well, it's interesting also because a lot of my really deep food memories are of, and I think because, you know, I'm a chef and I certainly have plenty of food memories that are linked to delicious homemade foods that, like, either you or grandma and grandpa on your side or dad's parent, well, dad's dad or you or dad made. But I also have a lot of really... uh intense food memories and nostalgia tied to processed foods you know um like pizza rolls and Campbell's tomato soup was such a big thing when I was a kid like honestly one of my biggest food memories of being a kid was Campbell's tomato soup I loved it remember you used to make it for me for breakfast yep you you did like having different foods at different times that's for sure you've always been your own person well, I mean, yeah, I just think it's like uh, being a child of the 90s, single parents, you know what I mean? Like you you eat processed foods a lot because it's it's quick and it's like, you know, we have to to honor the fact that it's hard to be a single mom, you know what I mean? And to like, it's easier to grab stuff that's processed. And plus, you know, the 90s was a different and time too. And also think too. kids are influenced a lot by what their friends are eating. And so they want processed food. You know, it's it's... And you're right, you know, a 
good parent that has a stable household says, okay, I'm sorry, you can't have chicken nuggets, but I'm going to make you chicken and we'll make it together. But as a working parent, it's true. There's a lot of use of, of things that are quick and easy. A, wor- a working parent and also we have it's it's really important to remember that like because I think it's easy in our culture today this is a bit of a tangent but I think kind of an important one that like you know we're all like it has to be homemade and it has to be local and chemical free and I agree with all of those things right like I am I in my heart I wish that everyone could eat natural foods that came locally and we're, we we could follow it back to the farm but um that's not how this country is set up. And I think we have to be a little bit less judgy of like processed foods and like, oh my God, it's processed. Like that's what people can afford. Have, exactly. That's you what have people, to know people's people like. situation. And that's really, that's where yeah. we become less judgmental when we consider that everybody has different situations that we don't know. Situations and also tastes. And like, that's okay. Like, I think it's like, and I, I'm bringing up this point just because of what we were saying before about processed foods be, having so much nostalgia. Not It shouldn't be shameful. I, remembering eating the crunchy marshmallows and packets of hot chocolate, in which I would like to mention, I also would eat some of the mix dry <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on my finger. I'm proud of those memories. I'm proud of like the person I was growing up. I am proud of the person you were as a mother growing up. It's not shameful to grow up without a lot of money. We, we do the best we can. Yeah, it's not. Sh- and so like, I think as prefacing, like, uh, pre- I wanted to preface this by talking about this, because I think when we talk about what our uh, comfort foods are, what the nostalgia is, it's it doesn't have to be cool or make sense to anybody else. You know what I mean? Like, it's so often things that are weird concoctions you made or like something your mom made you because you wouldn't eat anything else or little nibbles you've got. You know what I mean? Like it's just, well, that's been, the thing yeah. about your nostalgic food. It's it's nostalgic yes. to you for a special reason and nobody can take and we've that been learned, you, and yeah. nobody can tell you it's gross or not cool or not natural mm-hmm. enough. Like it's, it's your yeah, We've thing. been learning about that on our show on processing. And I remember so well one of our early interviews with Nicole from Indiana and I remember tuna puffs and I remember it was such a poignant moment to realize how significant that simple food was to her. And, um, so I agree with you 100%. And I also think that in our culture, we've learned a lot over the last 20 years. I've learned a lot. I'll speak for myself about what's healthy, what's not healthy. You've taught me a lot through the years. I remember when you come into my house and look in the refrigerator and say, this has preservatives and this is outdated. (laughs) And I learned a lot, you know, so I'm also totally. open to that, but I remember, I love the topic that we have today, and it was your ideas, are, and I loved so much thinking about specific foods that both of my parents made, my mother and my father, and I had such a good time this week imagining it. And I So tell me some of your well, things. Well, first of all, I decided to call it, these are a few of my favorite things. Oh, I love because it. Because as I, as I said, it brought me such warmth and just a joy when I thought about them. So would you like me to start? Please, I wish you would. Okay. My first story is about my dad, William B. Silvern, who was a dentist. He was very creative. As a matter of fact, later on in his life, in his retirement, he became a sculptor. And he also, during his um, time being a dentist, he also built furniture. So he was very creative. He loved ballet and he loved, you know, very creative things, artistic things. But he loved to make salad dressing. 
Ooh, so yum. he was a very healthy eater. I think he had heart attack when he was in his 50s. So he ate very healthy. You know, he always was eating, um, you know, salads and cottage cheese and fruit and um, triscuits and things that were healthy, you know. But when he made his salad dressing, it was like making a magic potion. And I think in a way, it was one of the first times, because my mother was a different kind of a, a cook. He was taking little bits of things and constantly tasting it. And he would, um, you know, mix a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And he stood there for maybe an hour making salad dressing. Well, it was the first That's time. A long time. Well, they, they did a lot of entertaining, and he would be in charge of the salad dressing. So I guess what he was making was a vinaigrette, now that I look back, because it was my introduction to the use of lemon and mustard. Because I know he had, and I love, both of us are lemon heads. So it was one of the first times I ever really got to see how lemon was used in food. But they would have their guests. And during the cocktail hour, I knew the salad dressing was sitting out. So I would sneak down so nobody would know. And I would start to taste and sample the salad dressing. Now, I'm in love. Sneaky dressing nibbler. I'm in love with salad dressing. I make salad, and I'm going to tell you a funny story about that soon. But I would, I couldn't stop eating salad dressing. So when they went to make the salad... There was very little left. There was not a lot left. <laughs> Bobby. Well. That's funny and So cute. I love salad dressing so much that my best friend had her birthday this week. And whenever she comes to my house, she she's, loves to eat. She eats with zest, and she loves my salad dressing. So I make a fig balsamic dressing. And mm, I yeah, love that it's dressing. It's very good. I'm going to tell you the recipe in a minute. But I decided to buy from Amazon two salad dressing containers. I had them shipped to the house and I made her salad dressing for her birthday and I put them That's filled nice. up the containers and she thought it was the greatest gift. So my fig balsamic great. dressing, I would like to give the recipe. It's fig jam and that's the sweetness. There's a good amount of fig jam. Um, good Dijon mustard, a good balsamic, lots of lemon, and um, basically, that's kind of it. And salt and pepper and... Um, olive oil? And olive oil, yeah. And it makes a yummy dressing. It kind of, the, of course, when you use mustard in a dressing, it thickens things up a lot. You know, it's emulsifier. But I realized that I always have dressings in my refrigerator because I, I like to have them made already. I don't like to make it in the moment. So I always have some fig balsamic. I have some Greek. I have an Asian dressing, which is very simple, really... Um, uh, s- sweetened um, rice vinegar, soy sauce, and um, sunflower oil. Makes a lovely dressing. You can put it on anything. I always have French dressing that I make, homemade French dressing in the refrigerator, and I have Caesar dressing. And those things, to me, I use them on all different things. I use them on vegetables and everything. But I did a little uh, research into the history of salad dressing. So would you be interested in hearing that? I'd love to. And I just want to mention that I'm just noticing right now that we are matching. We're on video and I just noticed that we're wearing the same specific color. And I love that. But yes, go ahead. I would love to hear the history of salad dressing. Um, So the history of salad dressing is that, you know, obviously it's used to bind, you know, greens and vegetables. And obviously we can use it with meats and all kinds of things. I really use salad dressing on everything because I love flavor. So believe it or not, in the Babylonian times, 2,000 years ago, there was evidence of salad dressing being made. It was like the first evidence of it. And <laughs> yeah, this just sounds funny. Evidence <laughs> of salad dressing was found. It's like a little, like a, some kind of like. When they dig up a tomb. <laughs> with like a 
There's a scroll with a, sh- a man, like an ancient man with a large, tall chef's hat on and like a little whisk and some mustard. He's like, ah, I'm making the salad dressing. But he's Italian for some reason. Okay, and the ancient ahead. Romans sprinkled salt and what they called grasses, which were herbs. And that's all they used. And that was called herba salata. And the Romans and Greeks experimented. They were the first ones to combine olive oil, vinegar, salt, and then later on they added things like wine and honey and fermented fish sauce and things like that. And the kings and queens of Europe had these unbelievable salads that had all kinds of um, flowers in it, 35-ingredient salads. And they started using mustard sauce that was and chervil. So they'd use a mustard sauce that was made with truffles, mustard, and chervil. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. So that was, you know, and then vinaigrette started to be spoken of like in the, you know, 1700s. Um, And then, of course, the Asians would use soy sauce that they used for many, many years. And the use of wish to shear sauce, because that's really became the component of Caesar Caesar salad dressing. So um, dressings were normally made from scratch, but then, in like in the 1920s, restaurants started selling their salad dressings. And that's before bottled salad dressings. That's how salad dressings became more commercially made, through restaurants. But then in 1912, Hellman started with mayonnaise. And, of course, that was mayonnaise is a base of many salad dressings, like Russian dressing and Thousand Island dressings and things like that, and remoulades. Right, but, you know, also, like, they call mayonnaise salad exactly. dressing. Which is, to me, as a mayonnaise, and I say this as a mayonnaise enthusiast to the max, I love mayonnaise. The thought of just putting plain mayonnaise onto a salad, I, it's beyond Although, my comprehension. Russian dressing is one of my favorite things, and I'll take mayonnaise and some good ketchup and sometimes some relish and, and lemon, but mayonnaise and ketchup itself is enough for salad dressing. I know, but there's something about just putting a spoonful of mayonnaise on salad right. that doesn't seem to work for me. Again, no kink shaming, no food kink shaming right. here on this show, but do you yep. know what I mean? But then Kraft started in 1935, and they started bottling salad dressings, and they started with French dressing, Kraft. Mm, um, love it. But interestingly enough, in England, vinaigrette is called French dressing because vinaigrette was the original um, French dressing so uh, now in england if you order french dressing they bring you vinaigrette they're all backwards Which over there you know they also call everything a pudding yeah yeah englanders <laughs> but a very interesting <laughs> for all the english people listening an interesting story is the story of caesar cardini who had a restaurant in tijuana in mexico and you know very famous and he started like in the 1900s making he was the first person who started caesar salad which was garlic and parmesan and worcestershire and Julia Child actually wrote in one of her cookbooks about going with her parents in 1926 to the restaurant in Tijuana and being served the first time she ever tasted Caesar salad. Yeah, I know that is interesting. And we all we always think of Caesar salad as being a Italian thing. But yeah, it was invented in Mexico, which is so I love I love that. Exactly. And the most famous dressing now, the mo- I shouldn't say famous, but the most bottle sold is hidden. Let me guess. OK, guess. Ah, Hidden Valley yep, Ranch. you got it. That's it. That's exactly right. You I'm sorry. I heard you say Hidden Valley. That's okay. You know what? Do you like ranch dressing? Um, I like to make ranch dressing. I don't. I hate bottle dressing. Now that I can make it, you know, I know how to make you almost do? any. Yeah, I don't really like bottle dressing. I still, 
I I never ever ever buy a bottle of dressing, but I do like it. If it was if I'm at a barbecue and there's a bottle of Hidden Valley Ranch, <laughs> I will absolutely slather my salad in that. It's funny, but but yeah, making ranch is and good. Think about you know in commercial dressings, there's stabilizers and thickeners and starches and even MSG. You know, so this and it's so good. It's good. But what about Newman? Uh, Paul Newman true. doesn't put any he starches makes- and stable. Look. Paul Newman makes a mean dressing. We can't deny that. We can't take that from him. His legacy is it's dressing. True, but now I could picture, instead of my father making dressing, I could picture Paul Newman making the salad dressing. Listen, <laughs> let's all picture Paul Newman making salad dressing, okay? He started, we did a, on Life's a Banquet on, on my other podcast, uh, Nicole did the history of Newman's Own. And she told us that Paul Newman started that dressing business, the whole empire now of different kind of foods. But... Um, he started by making that salad dressing in a bathtub in his garage. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And he was just the greatest guy. And he donated all that. He still all the proceeds from that go to charity, which is so cool. So there's that picture of little Bobby walking down That's the stairs cute. and drinking all the salad dressing up. <laughs> Does that make you think of Grandpa? Oh, so much. So like, much. Yeah. yeah, That's so sweet, mom. I love that. And can I ask you the million dollar question here? Which is, what's your favorite dressing, if you had to pick one? You know what? What's the most nostalgic feeling dressing for you? Well, that kind of vinaigrette that my dad would make. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. I have two. Now, I also want to mention quickly that I'm a huge fan. We don't have this anymore, and and post-COVID, we'll never see it again. But a salad bar at a restaurant, like, that was a very big thing when I was a kid growing up. And then you get to, like take all the mix exactly. the dressings Create your together own cook right at the table there. yeah <laughs> exactly and i've always been a person who like you likes a lot of different sauces and combining things so i would always take all the dressings but i have two favorite dressings for nostalgic purposes my first one is craft catalina dressing it's basically ketchup uh it's delicious i we always used to have it when i was a kid and um do I buy it now? No, but I, if I saw it, I try, I try to it make is, it. it. Lots of paprika. I yeah. we used to, yeah, we used to make it at Brucey. It was delicious, uh, like honey, tomato confit, garlic. Um, we'd put what cider else? vinegar. Like, yeah, we'd put red wine vinegar in it. It was great. Um, but my other one is from our favorite place that we've gone since I was a little kid and we still go to the Mediterranean Snack Bar in Huntington Village. And they make like a Greek salad dressing that's just beyond. I mean, you know, it's like a lot of garlic and onion and red wine vinegar and a lot of dried oregano and, and black pepper. Well, it's you know delicious. what I did? You bought me one of those for last Christmas holiday. You bought me a jar of it and then COVID hit. And so I had just a little bit left. I was enjoying it so much. So I said, I'm going to figure out how to make exactly this. And I still use the same bottle that you gave me a year ago. I just wash it out and then make the salad dressing and pour it in. And I've learned to make a really good Greek dressing exactly that way. You know, it has lemon and red wine vinegar and olive oil, tons of oregano, garlic mustard. Yeah. You know what a pro tip for that kind of a dressing is that I've recently learned and then we can move on? from dressing because <laughs> this is not a salad dressing podcast this is a podcast about grief people but um i've recently learned i get this like fried garlic in um like a container and i use it in everything and it's delicious it's great in dressing because i do love the flavor of garlic 
I don't, as I get older, I don't love the flavor of raw garlic as much as I used to. It kind of sticks with me. But this like fried garlic, if you put it in a salad dressing, it's so delicious. It's a really good good idea. I'll get you a it's jar. So tell me about, I, I also want to talk about my mom's nostalgic food, but let me hear one of your foods that is very nostalgic for you. Well, I thought you'd never ask, Bobby. So I want to kind of just briefly talk about food and nostalgia together. And I've got some information from two different articles, of course, from everyone's favorite website, Wikipedia, and then from the Huffington Post, an article by Julie Thompson and Time Magazine article by Alexandra Sifrelin. So in the Huffington Post article, um, Julie Thompson tells us that food memories are more sensory than other memories in that they involve all five senses. So I thought that was just because it's like, why are food memories so, you know what I mean? And that made a lot of sense. Of course, obviously, some people don't have use of some of their senses and can definitely still have, you know, food memories if, you can, if you're, uh, you know, visually impaired or hearing impaired. Like you can still, of course, have like still have the strong food memories. But um so taste, they say that taste memories tend to be the strongest of the associative memories that you can make. And it's because of a survival, partly because of a survival tactic called conditioned taste aversion. So part of it is like, you know, if you have something that makes you sick or that you don't like that same principle is like on the positive end is why we do remember things. It's like kind of a survival tactic. Um, in a July 2015 study, Jordan Trosi, an assistant professor of psychology at uh, Sawney University of the South, and his colleagues found that people with strong relationships preferred the taste of comfort food when they experienced feelings of social isolation. So if you grew up with like a really kind of like, let's say a supportive, positive you know, memory surrounding like a a parent who you had a good relationship with or mostly positive relationship who made delicious mashed potatoes. This person in this article is suggesting that when you are in times of crisis or peril or sadness, that you're going to crave that because you have a positive association. Do you know what I mean? And I thought that was interesting too, because, you know, some people like myself don't have like, I don't have a comfort food. When I'm sad, I'm not like, oh, I really want this, like, one thing. And I don't know, you know, exactly why. But I think, you know, for some people it could be because maybe they didn't have, you know, certain positive memories tied to to food. I don't know. Whatever. But anyway, I thought that was interesting. Um, he goes on to say, this probably comes about by individuals coming to associate a particular food item with members of their family, social gatherings, and people taking care of them, which is why we see a lot of comfort foods um, at traditional meals or at a party. And then they go on to say also, it's not just that ice cream is really tasty, it's that someone has developed a really significant meaning behind the idea of ice cream due to their relationship with others, and that is what produces the triggering effect. Biologically speaking, scent and memory are closely tied. Psychological research has demonstrated that smells are powerfully linked to memory and to autobiographical memory in particular. The olfactory bulb, which is involved in the sense of smell, is linked to the areas in the brain associated with memory and emotional Mm. experience. Which I just, you know, it makes perfect sense, but it's just reinforcing chemistry. So one of my strongest memories... Uh, with food and grief and and nostalgia 
is my dad, John, who passed away almost exactly three years ago now. The date was February 1st. Um, he used to make pea soup. Do you remember when dad made, did he ever make pea soup when you were together? Or did he, was this a post-divorce revelation for him? I think it was a post-divorce revelation. He got into pea soup once you got divorced. (laughs) Some people get a new car. He's like, you know what? I'm getting into pea soup. Um, he never made pea soup when you were together? Not so much. Really? Never at the restaurant or anything like that? Seems like something I, no. Did grandpa ever make pea soup? It really felt like it was passed down or Mm. something. Yeah, I think it was probably passed down from his father. Hmm. Okay, well, in, in any but case. tell us about your memories of pea soup. Okay, well, I will tell you about my memories of pea soup. It was delicious. And whenever I would go to dad's house, he would always have pea soup waiting on the stove for me. And he would always make it when I was growing up, too. Um, he'd put ham, like a ham hock in it or pieces of ham, and it would get all in there. Um, really soft potato. A pea soup, like pea soup is mushy. It's made using dried peas. I mean, you can make it with fresh peas, as I'll tell you about in a minute, but... Um, you know, the pea soup that I'm, I'm remembering is like dried split peas, green split peas, um, carrots, potatoes, like maybe turnips, celery, um, and like ham and like, you know, broth. He actually wouldn't use chicken broth cause he didn't eat chicken and he wouldn't even use chicken broth. So he might've used beef broth in it or vegetable stock. Um, but it's very thick and, it's delicious and it has a great smell to it and it's like sweet and it's savory and put a little olive oil and black pepper on top of it and it's just it was great and when I'd go visit him in North Carolina he would always have a pot on the stove always no matter what time of year it was he'd be like oh there's pea soup on the stove and it's one of those things that um would sit on the stove for days and we'd keep heating up and it was was funny because yesterday I had a I was wondering about a thing like I wonder how long can Something sit out, and I was remembering cassoulet, like how, like, you know, people will leave cassoulet on the stove for weeks and just use the same pot to keep making it in for years and years. And the pea soup would just would sit there, and we'd, like, make bowls of it and heat it up, and it was so delicious. I loved it so, so much. Crusty bread with, like, hot bread with cold butter in it, and so it's, like, it just starts to melt, but there's some of it that's still cold. It's like a brick of butter, and you dip it in the soup. <laughs> That's I'm ready st- to go make some. It's good stuff. It's good. Yeah. It's really good stuff. Pea soup is like, it's so my dad though. It's so him. It's like, it's, uh, it's delicious. So I have a little history of pea soup to tell you since I know you've been dying to know about the history of pea soup, all of you. Um, so, okay. According, this is from wikipedia.com. So according to Wikipedia, uh, the Greeks and Romans were cultivating peas around 500 to 400 BC. And during that era, vendors in the streets of Athens were selling hot pea soup. Now I'm picturing Athens, Greece, blazing hot. And people are just like, I'm since they didn't have any disposables then, I'm picturing people putting out their hands and having their two <laughs> cupped hands filled with burning hot pea soup um, in the blazing hot weather. But you know, who knows how it actually happened. Um, eating fresh, quote unquote, garden peas before they were matured was a luxurious innovation of the early modern period. Um, by contrast with the coarse traditional peasant fare of peas pottage, which is like, you know, what we know as the pea soup that we're talking about, dried, but pea soup is like pottage um, or pottage Saint Germain. 
made with uh was made with fresh peas and other fresh greens, braised in a light stock and pureed, and was an innovation sufficiently refined, so sufficiently refined that it could be served to Louis the Fourteenth of France. Sorry, I was reading Roman numerals; they're always confusing. Now, this I really love in uh, Sweden and Finland and Denmark and some of those countries. Um, it's traditional to eat pea soup on Thursdays and they eat it with pork and mustard. And so there's pork in it. And then they serve mustard on the side and dollop bits of mustard into the soup, like hot mustard as much as you want, which the thought of this is just, I need to have a new tradition. I need to COVID to be over so I can have my friends over on Thursdays and eat pea soup with mustard and, and pork in it. And then Get this, Bobby. They eat pancakes with like lingonberry jam along on the side. Yeah. And they well, they'll put either strawberry, raspberry, blueberry, cloudberry, or lingonberry jam. And so Thursday pea soup is common in restaurants and households throughout the Netherlands. Um, and is an unpretentious but well-liked part of social life. Swedish Prime Minister Per Albin Hassan, uh, who was alive in like the mid uh, early 1900s has a circle of friends jokingly referred to as the Parablelins uh who a former uh, who a number for a number of years came to his home every Thursday to eat pea soup and drink hot punch and play bridge. <laughs> I love it. Doesn't that sound it's, great? That's a great great story. I know. Love it. So, but I, oh but yeah, the we, smell of we pea need soup. some salad with salad dressing and then pea soup. Oh my god, that sounds so good. And pancakes. And then I I know what we could have for dessert. Pancakes. What? No. So can I share my next food? Yes, please. Okay. So for those listeners that may not know, my mom, Violet, um, Ibi was her nickname, was from the border of Yugoslavia and Hungary. And she was actually in an arranged marriage. So at 16, she was married off to somebody that she didn't know, a man who was 25 years older than her. And he had a family in Vienna. And they had a huge bakery business, like the largest bakery business in Vienna. So she went at 16 to live with her new husband in Vienna. And she worked in the bakery, and she was all involved in the bakery there. So my food memory is that my mom, the first memory I have of food is her making strudel. Now, my mom was also a Holocaust survivor, so after that she had to escape Vienna, and and all the difficult times began. And there was a lot of loss for her at that time of her life. But when I was born some years later, I guess it was 20, I don't know, 10, 15 years later, strudel was her way of connecting to her past. So there was a whole ritual that went on. I, mean, I could tell it was strudel night. If we were making strudels, it was, you know, the tables were cleared. Everything was cleared. We had a formica kitchen table and everything was laid out because she had to roll the dough. And strudel dough at that time, now we use phyllo dough. I use phyllo dough. I've never made my own uh, strudel dough. But the dough itself is made from very high gluten flour, eggs, butter, and a little vinegar and warm milk. And that's how it, because it makes it very stretchy. And she would stretch it out on the table that we had. And then over on the counter, she'd be slicing apples, which of course she'd mix with lots of cinnamon and sugar. And then she'd grind the nuts and she would use mostly walnuts, but sometimes we use hazelnuts and things like that. So she had this mixture. And then of course, in the apples, you put sugar, you put um, cinnamon, not too much sugar, by the way, cinnamon, lemon zest, some squeeze of lemon, 
and a little bit of flour. And that's the basic thing that holds it together. And then, of course, at times, she would add plums or cherries or raisins as well. Then she'd melt the butter. And just the way we make it now, she'd have a dish of melted butter, the fruit filling that was all prepared, and then this wonderful dough, you know. And then she'd roll it up, spread it out, roll it up. And the smell in that house, when I smell strudel to this day, you know, there's such a, a connection to not just my mom, but her heritage, her Eastern European heritage. Now, I've become, through my life, a strudelmeister. And I say <laughs> that because when your dad and I had our catering business, we made a lot of strudels, but they were savory strudels. We made spinach strudel, we made chicken strudel, we made crab strudel, we made a Moroccan chicken strudel, we made mushroom strudel and cabbage strudel. And when I went on to start an hors d'oeuvre business, it was based on those strudels. So I have made thousands and thousands and thousands You've made a of, lot strudels of strudels in my life. And to this day, talk about a rainy day. You can always make strudel. If you have phyllo dough in the freezer, which I always have, you always have apples and you have all the other ingredients. And it's very easy to make this just wonderful, comforting, comforting dessert. Um, I give strudels as presents, often holiday times, instead of giving... Um, cookies to people, I give them spinach strudels or other kinds of strudels. And uh, when I make strudels, like just this last weekend, I made strudel. So I made chicken strudel, which is my very, very favorite strudel of all. Um, it has uh, carrots, celery, um, onions, leeks, um, you know, really cooked down well. And then you poach the chicken and you mince the chicken and you mix it with a vegetable mixture. And then you roll it up into this just delicious, crispy, buttery strudel. And I make it for friends. You so make this week, good chicken strudel. It is really delicious. I gave it away to people in need. I had somebody that doesn't have a house now. I made her strudel. I had somebody who was a birthday, somebody who was sick, who doesn't eat that much. And I made strudels. So I love strudel, but I found out the most interesting thing last night when I was researching this. What is this, it? That, you know the, and so, the sign that we use? Um, ampersand. You know, at, ampersand. Oh, right? no. At or and? At. Oh, okay. At. Right. Yeah. Um, the one that you use at gmail.com, yeah, yeah. whatever it is. Well, for some reason, I love that symbol. I shouldn't say this online, but I use it in all my passcodes. I, for some reason, Bobby, it's my favorite symbol. Now we can all break into Bobby's bank account. But I have to tell you something interesting. It's actually a Hebrew word, and that sign, and it means strudel. What? Because it's the f- shape of the spiral form of a Are strudel. Are you serious? So my said, mind is, is truly blown. I know. Me too. Wow. Me too. That is an amazing, amazing fact. Uh, so from now on, I'm going to, if you want to email <laughs> me, it's zaratangorastrudelgmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> strudel me. You know, people say at me. Okay, at me then. Strudel me. We should start a new show called Strudel Me. And it'll be an all strudel podcast. Oh, it's too funny. Strudel time. (laughs) (laughs) Bobby, that's fun. I know. I I love it. I love, and I think of you, um, when I think of you, I picture a big strudel (laughs) with glasses. (laughs) No, but I do. I think of, it makes me think of grandma. It makes me think of you. Your apple strudel is absolutely divine. Layers upon flaky layers of goodness. But really, yeah, the smell of it, the whole thing. And and Grandma was such a wonderful... I was actually just thinking, this is a really honest thought, I don't think I ever really grieved Grandma's death the way I wish I could have because I had Brucie at the time. And I just don't think I got to grieve Grandma's death the way I 
I wished I could have. Um, I was just so consumed with the restaurant and, you know, I maybe I'm realizing it's never too late to grieve someone the way you want to. And so maybe I think I might take more time to think about having, a you know, my proper mourning for grandma because we were so close. I loved her so much. And I think about her all the time. It's not that I was, it didn't affect me or didn't care, but I wish I had been able to put more attention to it because she she was such a meaningful person in my life. And I think I didn't have the bandwidth at the time to mourn it the way I really wish I could have. Mm -hmm. And it is never too late, you know, through rituals and through, um, I guess ritual is the process of linking ourselves to something that, that isn't here. It's like a bridge. Yeah. Well, I'm going to mention quickly before we go, my last nostalgic food, which is, so deep and so big and so specific to the Tangora family and to dad and, and my grandpa, John, which is pizza rustica. Um, pizza rustica is something that I think people with Italian American families, uh, most people with Italian American families must have encountered this at some point, or at least heard of it. It's also known as Easter pie. Um, there's all different kinds of names for it, actually. I was learning the other day. It's not just called Pizza, pizza Rustica. They also call it Pizza Gaian, G-A-I-N. Have you ever heard that? Oh, or Pizza Pizza Gianna, uh, or Pizza Chinina. Never, I've never heard those. But Pizza Rustica is made all different kinds of ways. But there's like, the main components is a bread or pizza dough, or, you know, you can make it with a pie crust. Um, ricotta cheese and pecorino or parmigiano and some kind of cured meat. So, and it's layered and baked and sometimes it looks like a quiche and sometimes it looks like a bread and it has all different forms, but I'll tell you the way that we made it in, in my family and the way my dad made it and the way my grandpa John made it was that you took a homemade pizza dough you can certainly make it with a more like enriched dough. I think they made it with an enriched dough, but sometimes when I'd I'd make it, I'd get like a pizza dough. The pizza dough works really well too, but an enriched eggy dough is probably best. You start with that in in a deep dish. You make a mixture of ricotta cheese, uh, a hard cheese like pecorino or parmigiano, black pepper, and eggs, and you make a put a layer of that down, and then you put a layer of thinly sliced provolone. Uh, oh, and I'm sorry, very important into the ricotta mixture, you put ground up salami in there. And then you put a layer of that down. Then on top of that goes a layer of prosciutto or ham. And then on top of that, a layer of provolone cheese and then another layer of dough. And then you repeat like two or three times. Topped The top layer is bread. Um, and it's all encased and baked and then you cut into it and you have this. I don't remember the dough in the middle. Yeah. Dough in the middle. Oh, wow. Yep. A dough layer in the middle. Wow. Yep. It's like a club sandwich. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. It's so good. Oh. Yeah. It's delicious. And the dough in the middle is great because like the dough on the top and bottom are crunchy and the dough in the middle is, you know, it bakes in there and it gets fluffy, but it's just. Soaks up all the flavor. Oh, it's yeah. delicious. That's like the key layer. Is wow. the middle layer. Yeah. Oh. And then, you know, you let it cool and it's delicious. And the big thing in my family, too, is like, do you like it better cold or hot? I like it cold. I'm into it right out of the fridge or room temperature, but I also like it hot. And it's well, delicious. It's very good hot for breakfast. Like, because they would very have it good. on Christmas 
breakfast morning or Easter morning breakfast, and they would heat it up and grill it so all the cheese melts and the bread gets crispy. I like it. This is actually how I like pizza roast to go the best because this is how dad used to do it. He put it on very hot. You chill it so you can cut it because if you don't chill it first, then it's going to spill out everywhere. You chill it so you can cut into it. Then when it's cold, you take a nice thick slice and you put it in a very, very hot toaster oven. But so like it gets really melty and caramelly and the cheese bubbles on the outside, but it's still a little cold in the middle. That's perfect. That's pizza rustica. That's so dad. And when my dad died, my uncle Frank brought um, a pizza rustica to Thanksgiving, which is not traditional, but it was very sweet of him to make it. And I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but um, I took... Uh, a chunk of the pizzeruska and I buried it at my grandparents' grave, which I also is where I buried some of my dad's ashes so I can go see him. And it just felt so like nourishing to be able to do that. It felt like such a big deal. I don't know. So it's such a special food to our family. So I think today, you know, we've talked about different foods. Some were simple, some were more complicated and complex. They had to do with our cultural history and they had to do with the warmth, you know, um, in our family uh, of how food, that connection of food and love and heart and warmth, and now it's connected to our memories, and it's just so rich. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of other things, too, and I I could go on forever about things that remind me of uh, of being a kid, and your, like, your Spanakopita is such a thing that I remember talking about strudel, since this is now a strudel podcast. <laughs> But your Spanakopita is like the number one thing. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think uh, I've tried making pea soup. I've tried making pizza rustica. It will never be the same as the way dad made it. It will never be the same. Because, you know, part of it is like I could nail all the ingredients. I could, it probably does taste the same in reality, but it just won't ever be the same that I made it. And that's okay, you know? Um, I I love how you explained today that it's also connected to our brain chemistry, that our memories are in in the parts of our brain, and that the minute we smell something or see it or taste it, that it connects right back to where the memories are stored in our brain. It makes sense. Yeah. And just to kind of touch on how we started the show, I just think it's so important to remember that our food memories and the foods that are special to us and that were special in our family, it's all good. It's all good if it's weird. It's all good if it's from a box. It's all good if it's from a can. It's all good if it's picked straight out of the ground. You know, like those things are just so specific and so special. And like they're special no matter how fringe or how basic or how different or whatever they are or how processed or how organic. Like, you know, they're our memories. Then they're special. And and. Yes, we should try to eat healthfully if we can. And we should try because it's, you know, good for the environment and good for our bodies. But also, like, life is short and it's a mix of things. And, you know, uh, don't let anybody really tell you how you're supposed to do things, especially when it comes to the things that make you feel good and special and held and nurtured. Those are those are yours to hold on to and nobody can judge them or take them from you. And um Whatever food memory you might have, if you'd like to share with us, we'd love to hear. You can email us at processing at heritageradionetwork.org. We'd love to hear about some of your 
special nostalgic food memories that are perhaps tied to grief about someone you lost or, or whatever. Um, or you can direct message us, uh, processing at, uh, we're strudel processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Uh, you can DM us and share your, your, uh, food and nostalgia memories with us and we'll share them on the air. I'd like to make one other comment, which is that many of our guests have told us that when we bring up the concept of food and how it relates to grief, that they feel like a new channel opens up in their memory when they think about food. So I encourage all of our listeners, you know, to think about the foods that connect them to their loved ones. And they may find that new memories and different memories and different connections and different attachments come up when you think about food and how it relates to to grief. Yeah. Well, this was a beautiful episode, Bobby. Yes, sir, it was. And uh, I wish that I was with you so we could have a strudel, salad, pizza rustica. That's, I mean, it sounds like a great meal. Okay. Yes. Strudel, pizza rustica, delicious salad with a a buffet of different salad dressings. Uh, And And pancakes, which would be a new addition to our tradition, (laughs) but one that I welcome. Uh, so love to talk about food and can't wait to cook with you. Although I want to just also briefly tell our listeners that we did something that I suggest to many of you oh, that yes. we cooked a meal together on zoom. We Zara did. had bought me some wonderful uh, supplies for Japanese, um, sushi. And so I had the supplies at home and she had her supplies. We had the same ingredients and together on zoom, we had just a wonderful sushi party and it was so wonderful. It was I encourage all of you, if you're feeling lonely and missing your family, you know, consider cooking on Zoom together and uh, feeling the connection. It's fun. And like, it's fun to make the same thing. And it, it was fun to make something, you know, where that was kind of new for us in terms of making. Um, but I mean, whatever it is, it was totally fun. And it doesn't hurt if you are people who like to imbibe to have <laughs> a couple of drinks, too, because it's like it was fun. We drank sake and we um, yeah, we made sushi and it was quite delicious and uh it was that was really fun that was a good time so let's do it again times of covid stay connected through food love you guys okay love you guys take it easy take care of yourselves and each other bye bye My name is Sarah Kim and I'm from Austin, Texas. I'm a Cheeselandian because while life is great, cheese makes it better. Wisconsin cheese has proven time and time again to be a delicious expression of craft, hard work, and tradition. As a Cheeselandian, I am able to share a Gouda experience with fellow cheese and food lovers nationwide, as well as connect with cheese producers and cheesemongers, taking my love of cheese to another level. I invite you to join Cheeselandia because during these difficult times, it has been even more important to take it easy and get cheesy. The Cheeselandia community and events have been the glue helping to keep us together and connected, and I would love it if you would join me. And let's face it, if you hear the word cheese and get a little hungry, then you've found a place you can call home. To find out more about Cheeselandia, go to Cheeselandia.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. 
We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.